Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor Podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interests. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode I'm delighted to be joined by James Milne, Fund Manager at the Crux European Fund. James worked at Henderson Global Investors as a European Equities Fund Manager from April 2009 until he joined Crux in June 2015 with the success, successful merger of the Henderson European Special Situations Fund and the Crux European Special Situations Fund. James co-manages the Crux European Fund with Richard Peets. He previously worked at Newstar Asset Management, which he joined in July 2006, and began his career in 2002 at KPMG in London, where he qualified as a chartered accountant before moving into corporate finance. So James, firstly, a warm welcome to you and thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you for having me. So moving on to the Crux European Fund, could you tell us a bit about the the processes around it uh, and indeed the objectives of the fund? Yes, certainly. The process, which has always been the same for, for many years now, is four key criteria and they are business strategy and essentially what we're looking for are resilient global growing franchises which have mainly secular growth and also augmented with bolt-on acquisition growth and the reason this is quite key in Europe is that the GDP growth as everyone knows in Europe has been quite low for many years so you can't rely really just on the economy supporting the growth and another attribute would be that the company dominates its niche in and usually that's globally so that's the business and then we also equally important look at the quality of management if we're going to be buying the shares of a company we certainly want the ceo and the management and the and the board to also have bought shares or own a lot of shares and so a lot of the stocks in the portfolio sometimes it's actually the founder still owns a huge chunk of shares or certainly if it's a large company that's been running for a while, then perhaps the CEO has bought a lot of shares in, in the past. And I think actually it's, it's quite a big difference between Europe and the UK actually in this. In Europe, there are a lot of family holding companies and they usually stick with the shares for many decades sometimes. The third element is on valuation. And here we're really looking mainly at price to earnings uh, and we also look a bit at dividend yield, although obviously this year that's been a bit upset with the coronavirus. And we have to adjust quite a lot for companies with net cash. So we often look at um, enterprise value to uh, EBIT, for example. And then I think the fourth pillar, which is quite interesting here, is that the return on capital of the fund is between about 25 and 30%. Whereas for the index as a whole, it's more like 12 or 13%. So you can see that if you start off today at roughly the same valuation as the index, then if you can consistently make a return, which is double the index, then over the medium to long term, you should see the jaws of outperformance opening up. So those are the main four pillars for the process. And then um, on the objectives, we're not a thematic fund. In other words, it's when you look for them, the top down and identify areas that you like and then try and find stocks to fit that. What we tend to find is being bottom up stock pickers is that we come across a stock and then we do some work on it 
and then we find lots of its competitors in perhaps different regions or countries or slightly different areas but in a generally the same sector and then we often find that they all have quite similar characteristics that we like and so we end up with quite a collection of them so for example in the european fund we have quite a bit in technology payments and semiconductor so for example we might have software one which is essentially a microsoft reseller in europe but grows very strongly and man- a lot of management and co-founders have shares we have worldline for example which does uh, electronic payments which obviously benefits as people use contactless and cards more than cash then we also have for example vivendi which has a stake in universal music which benefits from more streaming and so on so for example that is not really a top down but it's just we've come across a lot of these similar types of businesses and then both a lot of themes and they all have the same common characteristic which is that they all have secular growth for the medium term and they're all attractively valued. So given the um, fairly challenging objectives, quite rightly, you set yourself for that stock selection. Are there any particular countries that you find yourself drawn to in terms of the uh, allocation of the fund? Usually actually in Europe, in a way, because some countries are quite small in size, such as Switzerland and Sweden, oddly, they often have actually really quite successful and large companies. I mean, certainly Switzerland has some of the largest companies in Europe listed there. And we find the culture of management in Switzerland uh, and the Nordics particularly strong. And often with Swiss companies, they seem to have very high returns on capital and often net capital balance sheet. So we often end up with quite a few Swiss stocks. But don't forget, these are listed in Switzerland, but the main denomination of the businesses in, in currency terms would be in euros or dollars or any other currency, not, not really Swiss francs. So they're not really, you might say, a Swiss company. But a global company listed in Switzerland. But certainly we'd say that Switzerland, Nordics, a bit of Germany, a bit of France, probably the, where the main number of companies are actually listed. And then we don't tend to have much in Southern Europe just because we tend to avoid naturally anyway utilities, telcos and banks. And they tend to be a bit more prevalent in, in, uh, in Southern Europe. You've already mentioned the sort of technology and software and, and a partial reference to, to Vivendi as well. But again, in, t- in terms of alloga- allocation, uh, what, what are the sort of sectors that you're, you're currently particularly interested in or indeed invested in? So rather unfortunately, the way that sometimes these classifications of uh, companies are done, you end up with a lot being lumped into industrials. So for example, in our industrials holding, would you believe, you end up with things like Worldline, which is payments company so it should really be in sort of technology or i mean even in finance or yes. financials but but not really in um in industrials so we end up with lots of industrials but but they're not really you might say metal bashers that you might think of an industrial company yeah. and we have a lot of i mean for example we have something like sig combi block which is the equivalent of tetra pack which does the packaging essentially for mainly milk you know uht in, in europe and well actually globally so their main customers, you know, might be the, the orange, you know, orange juice and milk producers, but yet it's classed as an industrial because it sort of makes the machines that do the packaging and then sells the sleeves, which is why it's such a nice business because it's like a razor, razor blade model because the packaging company has to buy the, the sleeve from SIG, not just the machine. And we also have, for example, transport companies or logistics companies like DSV and Kuna Nagel, which we like because they're very asset light. So they don't own any truck or any boat or any container and what they're really doing which is a sort of clever bit is connecting the person that wants to 
sell of goods to the person that wants to buy them, which might be in a very different parts of the world, and they all want to have track and trace and know exactly what temperature everything along the way. So um, their main customers are going to be all sorts of end industries, but then they also get lumped into industrials. So I'm afraid it's a bit of a long answer to say, uh, annoyingly, we do end up with a lot of industrials, but actually none of them are really particularly you know, industrial production. So in terms of your top holdings, for example, what sort of companies are at or around the top, the top of that particular list? We like companies like, for example, uh, Novo Nordisk, which is actually the largest holding. And this is benefits, you might say, sadly, from obesity and diabetes because it produces drugs you know, to help with the diabetes patients and also um, with, with obesity. And this is quite a small niche in pharmaceutical sector and actually they've just benefited because they've done a lot of investment over the years when over the last decade or two it's often been seen as not that interesting a growth area and so there hasn't been that much investment so they're benefiting from that quite significantly we also have holdings in food ingredients companies which are benefiting because a lot of their end customers it's more eat at home so they haven't really been affected by the lockdown and and in fact although there's some extra logistical costs they slightly benefit because People are eating more healthily, you know, they want less sugar and less fat, for example, and they produce a lot of the substitutes for that. Then we have other companies, which I mentioned before, such as, you know, in payments as well. And we have a um, bank in, which is a so-called bank in Italy called Finico Bank, which essentially is like the Hargreaves Lansdowne, but listed in Italy. And that's growing very nicely at the moment because people can put all their deposits and savings and current accounts into Finico very easily online. And they don't have to visit the branch, which obviously is now more difficult under coronavirus lockdown. We also like testing companies. So we have Bureau Veritas and SGS and also Eurofins Scientific. And Eurofins in particular is benefiting because it does a lot of clinical diagnostics. And so uh, it's doing a lot of the testing that, that we need for uh, COVID-19. So I think that's probably a, a selection of some of the sort of top positions in the fund. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And, and how are you finding that the fund is uh, coping in the, in the current uh, rather difficult environment? So actually, uh, this year, it's a couple of percent ahead of the peer group. And so far, actually, since sort of March, April, May, it's been performing quite well. The market, as you probably know, is quite volatile because essentially nobody has really much strong conviction as to where exactly the economy is headed for the next or how the, um, the lockdown sort of un is eased by governments and in what stages. And even if it is eased, how much people will go back to exactly their old way of life and will people fly to the same extent if, if we are allowed to, for example. So more or less on a daily basis that the sort of stocks are quite volatile particularly banks and, and cyclicals but we've slightly stuck to our knitting you know, we, we've made some adjustments because there are a few stocks which we always thought were a little bit expensive and then perhaps say like dsv for example and that came back quite significantly in the um in, in march and april and so we could buy some then so we've used the sell-off to buy into some companies which we thought were very high quality and high growth and high return on capital and good management etc but had been a little bit we thought quite fully valued and there was quite an indiscriminate sell-off in, in March um, and they remained quite well valued in, in, in April as well so that's why we could do quite a bit of trading well quite a bit a little bit at the, the edges. Finally uh, James and we, we tend to leave the simplest question until last what do you think might happen for the rest of, of this year and uh, presumably tipping over into the early months of 2021 in other words what, what's your current outlook on the world? 
world as we find it? Well, I usually find in terms of actually stock selection, my view is that the higher quality names with the, with the structural growth are the, hopefully will be the winners, what we think will be the winners. And so that's why, you know, we've got sort of the payments and the diagnostics and uh, a lot of, you know, food and beverage companies which should be unaffected. We're quite underweight in banks and financials because it looks like interest rates are either going to stay very low or may even go further negative, which is very unhelpful for banks to make a profit. And obviously the provisions that the banks have got could be absolutely enormous. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. So we haven't really got much exposure to to those sectors. And obviously certain sectors like travel might take and events might take quite a long time to come back unless we have a very convincing vaccine because people perhaps won't want to be in large groups or sitting in cramped planes for, for long periods of time. So we, we know we are a bit cautious on certain sectors and then obviously there's a lot of things which then you might say feed off those sectors as well. So we're quite sort of optimistic about with some secular growth stocks but, but a bit cautious perhaps on gen, the general economy as well. Understood, because I, I think it seems to be increasingly agreed that it's um, going to be the recession we're probably in is going to be fairly severe. question, of course, is, is how long it's going to be. And that, uh, that remains the, the, the million dollar question overhanging yeah. so, so many of the global economies. I'm afraid we've, we've run out of time already, James. I, I thank you very much in, indeed again for your time. That's James Milne, Fund Manager at the Crux European Fund. And thank you indeed for listening. And do join us next time for the Interactive Investor Podcast. Mm-hmm.